It's uh, a great privilege for me to to be here with you today. I uh, have enjoyed my time working here at the college immensely. Uh, I want to thank also the uh, the band and uh, worship band and Steve and Lauren. Those songs were perfectly appropriate for what we're going to be looking at today. It's been a privilege to work with uh, Doug Bookman. Um, uh, Doug's kind of the mastermind behind what we do in our program, and uh, I'm kind of the detail person. And um, sometimes moving from his big ideas to the details is a little bit of a tangent, but uh, I'm sure that if you've been in class with Doug, you'll understand that uh, it's his heart you listen to and you don't try to take notes or outline, right? (laughs) It is a great privilege for me to stand before you today and open up God's Word. And as we do that, I don't do it lightly and I don't take it for granted that we can do it. And I'd like us to ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we stand before you, or sit rather, and we've been here many times. We've sat in these bleachers and in these chairs. And Lord, three times a week, and sometimes even more, we've heard your word. I pray that we won't throw your pearls away, that we'll apply them, that we'll take your truth as precious, that we'll take your teaching from your word as the most dear thing to our hearts, and that we'll apply it to live for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. It's really interesting to me as we're looking at this um, series on the um, fruit of the Spirit that the first three fruit, you can say them with me, are what? Love, joy, peace. Now that you learn them from, the na- from your neighbor, you can say them with me. Ready? Love, joy, and peace. And who of us will admit to not having looked long and hard for love and joy and peace? Love, that sharing of an unconditional relationship. All of us have looked for that, and we heard uh, Dr. Mackey speak on it on Monday. Joy, that means finding the ultimate happiness, or peace, the absence of conflict. All of us have been looking for those. But the passage makes it clear that these longings aren't victories to be won, but rather virtues of a Christian heart to be lived. If I could, I'd like to tell you about one of my best friends as a kid. I spent a lot of time with him. He was a dear friend. We spent uh, many, many days together. And we would spend time together and then we would drift apart and then we'd always come back together. And um, you may have known him. His name is Alexander. And uh, he's the character of Judith Voorst's Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. How many of you, just curious, have read this book? Okay, how many have not read this book? Okay, you're going to hear it. It just takes a couple minutes. I need to read it to you. I understand this is a children's book. Like Doug said, I'm well read, and this is what I spend my nights doing. I wish you could see the pictures. I was talking to Joel. I wish we could get these pictures, because the pictures are just priceless. But I think you'll get the gist of what the book is trying to say. Alexander and a Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I went to sleep with gum in my mouth, and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard, and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At breakfast, Anthony found a Corvette Stingray car kit in his breakfast cereal box, and Nick found a junior undercover agent code ring in his breakfast cereal box, but all I found in my cereal box was breakfast cereal. I think I'll move to Australia. 
In the carpool, Mrs. Gibson let Becky have a seat by the window. Audria and Elliot got seats by the window too. I was being scrunched. I said I was being smushed. I said, if I don't get a seat by the window, I'm going to be carsick. And no one even listened. I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. At school, Mrs. Dixon liked Paul's picture of the sailboat much better than my picture of the invisible castle. (laughs) At singing time, she said I sang too loud. At counting time, she said I left out 16. Who needs 16? I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. I could tell because Paul said I wasn't his best friend anymore. He said that Philip Parker was his best friend, that Albert Moyo was his next best friend, that I was only third best friend. I hope you sit on attack, I said to Paul. I hope the next time you get a double-decker strawberry ice cream cone, the ice cream part falls off the cone and rolls all the way to Australia. There were two cupcakes in Philip Parker's lunch bag, and Albert got a Hershey bar with almonds, and Paul's mother gave him a piece of jelly roll that had little coconut sprinkles on the top. Guess whose mother forgot to put in dessert? It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That's what it was, because after school, my mom took us all to the dentist, and Dr. Fields found a cavity just in me. Come back next week, and I'll fix it, said Dr. Fields. Next week, I said, I'm going to Australia. On the way down the stairs, the elevator door closed on my foot, and while we were waiting for my mom to get in the car, Anthony made me fall where there was muddy, where it was muddy, and then I started crying because of the mud, and Nick said I was a crybaby. And while I was punching Nick for saying crybaby, my mom came back with a car and scolded me for being muddy and fighting. I'm having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, I told everybody. And no one even answered. So then we went to the shoe store to buy some sneakers. Anthony chose the white ones with blue stripes. Nick chose the red ones with white stripes. I chose the blue ones with red stripes. But then the shoe man said, we're all sold out. They made me buy plain old white ones, but they can't make me wear them. When we picked up my dad at his office, he said I couldn't play with his copying machine. But I forgot He also said, watch out for the books on his desk. And I was careful as I could be except for my elbow. He said, don't fool around with his phone, but I think I called Australia. My dad said, please don't pick him up anymore. It was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. There were lima beans for dinner. And I hate limas. There was kissing on TV. And I hate kissing. My bath was too hot. I got soap in my eyes. My marble went down the drain. I had to wear my railroad train pajamas. I hate my railroad train pajamas. When I went to bed, Nick took the pillow he said I could keep, and the Mickey Mouse light burned out, and I bit my tongue. The cat wanted to sleep with Anthony, not me. It has been a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And my mom says some days are like that, even in Australia. Why did you guys only laugh at the kissing part? You say, why do you read that, Rick? Because uh, as silly as it seems, I remember reading that as a kid and thinking, you know what, I have days just like that. I have days that are terrible, horrible, and no good. And if you've been alive very long, then you know that lots of days are like that, right? And that brings us to look at the two issues, the two... uh, You always mess up when it's two fruits, two part of the fruit of the Spirit, joy and peace which we've been called to look at this morning. Proverbs 27, 1 says, You do not know what a day may bring forth. And Alexander is a testimony of that. Life is hard. Life is painful. Life is difficult. Life is confusing. 
And the first man who ever discipled me said this, Rick, life stinks and you've got two choices. It can stink with God or it can stink without God, but I choose option A. Look, life doesn't have to be miserable, does it? And it should not be. And it cannot be miserable for a believer. You say, great, Rick. So why do I have bad days? Why do I have a broken heart? Why do I have a hard life? Why are my studies going wacky? Why are my relationships going wacky? Or why do I have a roommate who has all of these plus 12 more afflictions that I have to deal with in my room? Well, I think that we find the answer to that by looking to the book of Galatians. And you can't just walk into the fruit of the Spirit and start roaming around the tree. You can't just walk in and say, okay, here's the fruit of the Spirit, this nice list. You've got the, the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit. We're going to start looking around, poking around, and understand it. It's impossible. And I would beg you, as being students of Scripture, never, never, never walk into a passage and just assume that you can walk into a little snippet of verses and understand what's going on. If that were the case, that would have been the book that Paul wrote. Instead, he gave us an entire book, Galatians. There was a problem in the Galatian church. And if you study it very much, you'll find that you have a group of Christians who are frustrated, a group of Christians who are struggling, a group of Christians who are confused, and a group of Christians who were, for the most part, miserable. Some even angry at God about their Christian walks. Why? Why would anyone be frustrated in their Christian life? Well, added to the list of what you and I could answer that question, in Galatians 3, verse 1, Paul writes, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes is Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This only, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Those three verses tucked away are really kind of the conclusion of the introduction to the letter. And what Paul does, he says, I want to identify three problems that you have that have caused you such distress in your life. And if you don't understand the problems, then you can't understand the works of the flesh and subsequently the fruit of the Spirit. Why were the Galatians having such trouble in their Christian lives? Why were they struggling? Why were they confused? And I won't take a hand count to say how many of you have been confused in your Christian life. How many of you have had a situation happen and you just thought... God, I, what, I don't understand. That hurts. Or I'm doing this neat thing and, and, and I'm getting persecuted. Or, or she doesn't like me, he doesn't like me, they don't like me and they said this and it's not true or they said this and this is true. And you're just confused. Three things arise out of those verses. And I hope that you can at least identify maybe something that's a struggle in your life in these three things that Paul addresses to the Galatians. He says, first of all, you have confusing theology. Their theology was confused. See, they were saved by grace through faith and they were confused because of the teaching of Peter, which we'll see in a second, about the understanding of grace and pleasing God in grace and pleasing God in the law and obeying His works, His word and His, His works and the law. Confusing theology. Secondly, they, were, they had a confusing teacher or confusing teaching. Peter had come along after Paul, muddied up Paul's teaching on the relationship between the law and the gospel, and they were really confused. I mean, imagine this. You have Paul comes through, and he preaches one set of series, one, one series of sermons. You have uh, Peter, who comes through, teaches another set, and now Paul comes back. Could you stand and listen to two apostles say, oh, yeah, that's true, oh, yeah, that's not true? They were confused. And I'll, I'll be honest, I don't think it was entirely their fault. Peter had took a misunderstanding of Scripture and led an entire church into error. 
And just as a footnote, those of you men who are studying to be pastors and teachers, I hope this shows you the absolute necessity of being accurate in what you say. The absolute necessity of studying to say what you're going to say. Don't you dare stand up before a group of people, whether you're a man in a pulpit or a woman leading a Bible study with young kids or women you disciple. Whatever, don't you dare stand up before someone and say, Thus says the Lord, unless you've studied what the Lord says. That's why the church is in so much trouble today. That's why we're struggling in our walks today. It's because we have this, this errant theology coming from errant teaching because people haven't treasured the Scriptures enough to actually look and see what they say. Well, they had confusing theology, confusing teaching. And third, and probably where you and I will land in the hardest, is uh, they had confusing effort. They had confused effort. Paul says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are now being perfected by the flesh? They were trying in the power of the flesh to live the Christian life and practice godliness. Did you hear that? The Galatians came to know Christ... And then, after they had come to know Christ, given their faith in the Lord Jesus, had turned and said, okay, we got this thing wired, now we're going to go back to the law, we're going to go back to our old standards, and begin living in the Old Testament law to fulfill the commandments of God, which sounds right, sounds holy, sounds good enough, except that they missed the whole point. They were just checking off. They were going right back to the Phariseeism, where they would do things, do things, do things, and it would make them righteous. You can do nothing that's righteous. I read a book that's, um, it's got some problems in it, but... Um, I think for the most part the message is good. It's, uh, what made a difference in my life? Uh, Transforming Grace by Jerry Bridges. And the premise of the book is this. We love to preach justification by grace through faith, right? We love to say you're saved by grace and grace alone. There's nothing you can do to get to God. You're lost, you're depraved, you have a stiff arm in God's face. There's nothing you can do to get to God. And we like that part. God came and saved us. But if it's God's grace that saved us, and it's God's grace that will redeem us in the end in glorification, don't you also think it's God's grace that sanctifies us? It's God's grace that allows us to do those things which please Him in our everyday Christian life? The Galatians didn't understand that just as we struggle with it. I mean, I struggle with it here trying to explain it. How can you say, okay, God's going to make me righteous today, God's going to make me holy, God's going to do righteous things in me, but I've got to try to do it? If you can write a, a, a nice book on that, you'll, you'll be a, a million seller. It's the both and. We try, but we lean on God's grace. But we all, all we, it's frustrating because we look back to our saving experience and say, yes, we were saved by God's grace. It's all God. But then we say, now we're going to make this thing work. I'm going to try hard to do the right things. I'm going to try hard to be a Christian. And all of us know the absolute devastating frustration of trying to please God in the flesh, don't you? Would you just nod if you do? How many of you have tried? I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna break this sin. I'm gonna break this habit. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna respond to this person who I don't like, and they don't like me. But I gotta respond rightly anyway. I'm gonna try so hard today, and it doesn't work. And God's up there saying, "Trying in the flesh. You're trying in the flesh." The Galatians did the same thing. They went back to the law. We go back to our own effort. We go back to whatever you want, the system you want to, psychology, the way you were raised, whatever, but you say, this is the way I'm going to deal with my Christianity, rather than leaning on the eternal truth that God's given us to do that. As a footnote, have you fallen into any of the traps? Is your theology okay? I trust that it is. Even though I'm not naive enough to think here at, a, uh, at the Master's College, we have a very stringent doctrinal 
statement that there are people who say, you know, I don't, I don't know about that. Is your theology straight? Have you fallen into that trap? Are your teachers people who are teaching you the truth? And if you're a teacher, are you teaching the truth? Or are you trying so hard to please God in the flesh that you're frustrated and you're seeing an end? Well, these trappings made for very frustrated pursuit of Christ and His likeness for them just as they do to us. And as we approach chapter 5, where we find the fruit of the Spirit, Paul's already taken care of two of those problems. He took care of Peter in chapters 1 and 2, right? I wish, uh, I mean, I'm glad I wasn't there. That's one of those confrontations you, you would have felt really uncomfortable at. Paul takes Peter and just says, he's wrong and here's the problem. He took care of the wrong teacher. He also took care of the wrong theology. It takes four chapters to explain justification by faith. But as we come into chapter 5, one issue remains. Confusion about the ability of the flesh to produce righteous Christian living. And so he tackles it in chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Verse 16. But I say to you, and if you want to do an interesting study, look at the connectives in Galatians. The, the but I say and for I say and everything and look back to what it's connected to we don't have time to do that right now but I say walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please but if you are led by the spirit you are not under the law what does that mean? what's going on there? The Apostle wants the Galatians to recognize that there are two powers within every Christian. And you've heard this preached many times. There's the flesh, and then there's the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to try to tell you the difference between nature and person and old man, new man. That'll take a lot of time. I'll just tell you there are two basic powers that work with you, and you don't, even have to, you don't have to have the Bible to tell you that, right? If you're a Christian, you know that the Holy Spirit has one tug, and your flesh has another. The Galatians kind of had an idea about that, but they didn't really understand it. They said, well, but we can still try this thing. We can still make it happen. The two courses, Paul says, are absolutely incompatible. You cannot pursue the desires of your flesh and at the same time pursue the desires of the Spirit. You can't do it. You can't do it. Your life is either on one track or it's on the other. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, um, in a study on the Sermon on the Mount tells an illustration of of a man who is saved. And he says, when he's saved, it's like he's taken out of one field that he's lived his whole life in. He's taken out of that field and he's thrown into a new field. The problem is that the two fields, the old field and his new field, are right next to each other, only with a road in between. And though, as a Christian, we're taken out of the one field and transformed into the other, where we should be moving away from this field, moving toward Christ, we're in the field, but you know where we like to live? Or you know where we like to play? Right at the edge. You know why? Because if we're right at the edge, we can, we can still hear the pleasures that we, we used to enjoy. We can still be tempted. And Satan can lean right across the fence and say, Hey, remember those struggles? Weren't they fun? Wouldn't you like to enjoy them again, whether they're in your heart or in your deeds? And the point is, he says, when you change fields, you don't look back and you move away from that field. But we're not so naive to think that when we become Christians, we move so far away from the field, we never see it again, Right? There's almost a leash that draws us all the way back there and that leash will be cut when we go to heaven. Paul says, you want to try it in the flesh? Okay, I'll let you try it in the flesh. Let me tell you what happens. Verse 19. You want to try living in the flesh? You want to try your hardest to live the Christian life? Here's what you're going to have. Now the works or the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, here's the sexual sins, morality, impurity, sensuality. 
religious sins, idolatry and sorcery, relational sins, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions and factions, envying, and then drinking or sins of appetite, drunkenness and carousing, and then he groups a big bunch of things that he hasn't even said, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice or do consistently such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. When I first began studying the, the fruit of the Spirit, we were in high school, I, was in high, I was a high school pastor back in, in Tennessee, and we, we took every one of them and did a cute little Bible study every week. At the end of the Bible study, there was about six or eight weeks where we took a couple of weeks and did them. At the end of the Bible study, I went back and read all of Galatians chapter 5. And I was teaching the fruit of the Spirit. I was, boy, wouldn't it be good if you could do this? Wouldn't it be good if, these, if this was your life? Isn't this the goal? That's not the point at all. Read again. Listen again. The end of verse 21. Those who practice such shall not inherit the kingdom of God. The fruit of the Spirit isn't some nice little lovely tidbit that we should study. The fruit of the Spirit is an issue of eternity. If you have the fruit of the Spirit, you're saved. If you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, and these, this list that we just talked about characterizes your life, you're not. Those who practice as a habitual pattern of behavior such things shall not go to heaven. They won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. These are the works of the flesh. And they're contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. I read... Uh, probably a dozen commentaries on, on this passage in the last week. Um, and everyone makes, wants to make a big deal about that. You see, you have the works of the flesh and you have the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the works of the flesh, that's something you do, and the fruit of the Spirit is something you don't do. Well, don't, don't make too much out of that. You say, why is that, Rick? Because uh, in Proverbs 16, it says, the works or the wages of the righteous are life. And the fruit or income of the wicked is punishment. The idea that this is the fruit of the Spirit and the reason it's singular not plural doesn't have to do with it's not something that you do. I heard the fruit of the Spirit preached one time. You can't do it and say you just rest in God and He'll do the rest. That's actually a brand of Christianity I'd like to try. I'll get my pillow, I'll go home, I'll put on the college football and I'll just sit there and I'll let it have God just bear the fruit. This is a good, this is a good, just bear it. I'm just going to sit here on the couch and you bear it all you want to. I wish it were that easy. You understand, I hope, that even though God causes the produce, that it still takes our effort. You still have to do something. You still have to pursue your sanctification. Why is it fruit instead of fruits? It has nothing to do with... Uh, if you ever hear someone say, well, the fruits of the Spirit are, and they, they do a plural, I've heard people, oh, you got that wrong. That's the fruit of the Spirit. I studied it. It's singular. No S there. Well, don't be so proud because um, I, I've heard it. Well, it's, it's a cluster, actually. And so you have the berry. And it's the berry of the cluster or the grape. And so it's really a piece of fruit, but it's not the fruit. And it, Who cares? Who cares? The issue isn't that it's the, the plural fruit. If it's an apple, orange, pomegranate. I mean, all of these are different characteristics. I don't have any trouble calling each of them fruit. The issue is the reason it's called fruit is because they all come from the same place. They all have the same singular root. And the root is the Holy Spirit. He is the root of all righteousness. Now we come to that fruit. Chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
And then, even though he's saying against such things, you could say such spiritual virtues as those. Well, that was a lot of introduction to actually get to two fruit that don't take much explanation. Joy and peace. Dr. Mackey told us about love on Monday, that unconditional acceptance that we all long for and long to have. But what about joy? What is biblical joy? Let me give you a long definition that I got from Dr. MacArthur. Then I'll give you a shorter one. Dr. MacArthur says this, Christian joy is the emotion springing from the deep down conviction that God is in absolute and complete control and that He will bring from every situation our good in time and His glory in eternity. That's a big way of saying it. It's a feeling of happiness based on spiritual realities. If you want a good definition, it's a feeling of happiness based on spiritual realities. Joy is grounded not in circumstances, but in God. And you know this. This is review. 1 Peter 1.8 says that it's only found in Christ. Psalm 16.11 Thou wilt make known to me the path of life. Thy, in thy presence is the fullness of joy. Isn't that good? That's a good verse to meditate on. Psalm 16.11 In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand are pleasures forever. Fullness of joy only comes from the presence of God. Now, quick heart check. What gives you the most pleasure? Just, just take a second and think of it. What gives you the most pleasure? If you have a Saturday afternoon and you can do anything you want, what are you going to go do? What gives you the most pleasure? Second question is, does it satisfy? When I was um, uh, in college, I began... Uh, uh, I had run in high school. I'd been a distance runner in high school. Um, and uh, I had swam growing up and so uh, this guy talks me into trying triathlons it's a neat thing and, and I figure I got two of them I can do fairly well and uh, so I went and bought a bike it's a Schwinn World Sport it was gray with pink lettering on the side it was masculine just the pink riding letter um, and I bought that thing and I did my first triathlon in it and I liked triathlons they were fun um, the only problem was I showed up and uh, I looked around and mine was the only one with brakes up here you know where you do that, and it had a little, uh, not a luggage rack, what do you call those things? Those racks, you know, you put on the back, because I thought, I can take stuff with me. And I was really embarrassed, so I thought, this, this, is, not, this is not a triathlon bike. That's a triathlon. So I went and bought a Peugeot. It was burgundy, it had yellow riding. It's a PGN 13 or something, I think is what it was. And I had that for about six months. Now we're dealing with about eight months of uh, bicycle purchasing here in the Guys at the bike shop love to see me come. Rode that for a while and went to another triathlon in Florida, which the big guys were, were at. And I looked around and looked at my Peugeot and looked at these things and said, no, I need a custom bike. So I went and bought an Italian frame, spent about a lot of money <laughs> on uh, this bike. It was, a, it was a Wiener Italian frame, Italian threading. Have to buy all this special stuff to get it in. Chrome forks. I think I can tell you this. It was, it, was, it was hot pink. It was just because I figured that my masculinity could handle that. And, um, it was beautiful. It was an absolutely gorgeous bike. And then after I had spent a lot of time and a lot of money on those bikes, realized that there was yet another bike that I wanted. And the Lord kind of stopped me and I thought, you know, this could never end. This could never end. I could always get something better. There's always something more, Right? But, but you know what? The first day I brought that Schwinn World Sport home and that Peugeot PGN 10 and, the, and my Wiener, the first day I brought home, you know what I thought? I'll never need another bicycle 
the rest of my life. This is the greatest bicycle ever bought. You know the same thing with CDs and tapes. I've got to have a CD. That's I, Stephen Curtis Chapman's. I've got to have it because it'll, it'll make me happy and I'll sing it and I'll sing it loud and the radio and, and uh, in the car and people won't see me, but I'll, I'm going to... And you get it and you listen to it a while and what happens? After a while, you stop listening to it and then you want something else or clothes. And girls, I don't need to spend much time on this. We just need to look at your closets. Why girls need 12 pairs of shoes or 15 blouses or three coats. And I, my mom always told me, you have a coat, you wear it, it keeps you warm, and that's it. But if it doesn't match, then you, need to, you know what I'm talking about. The point is this. We are far too easily pleased. As Christians, we're far too easily pleased. We're pleased with bicycles, with CDs, with books, with relationships. We're pleased with anything that comes along. You know what Jesus says? Be pleased with me. If you want to have joy that doesn't go away, you're only going to find it in the pleasure of God. Every other pleasure you seek will be temporary. And you've learned that over and over and over, and yet you keep on. It's buying, it's getting, it's having, it's having this relationship. It won't satisfy you. Even the greatest marriage on earth will leave you empty unless you have Christ. Everything you want, anything you want, won't give you joy unless your joy is found in the Lord. How can you develop such a biblical joy? Well, it's pretty simple. First of all, believe. Believe. Have faith. Spiritual realities only bring joy when they're embraced by faith in your soul. It's kind of a good plug for quiet times, right? How about think times? Everyone talk, had my quiet time this morning. Do you ever have think times? I'm going to take Sunday afternoon, for example, and I'm just using it as an illustration. Why don't you say, I'm going to take Sunday afternoon, I'm going to go up to Nike Basin, I'm going to go down to the beach, I'm going to sit for two hours, and I'm not going to have anything there, I'm not going to have my Bible, I'm not going to have my, my journal, I'm just going to sit and think and look at my life and see where I'm going and see where I've come from. I think if some of you did that, it would terrify you. You'd spend five minutes be so uncomfortable you'd be back in the car and heading back up this way. Do you think? Stop and think. See, we're on this chasing so fast and so fierce and we want to fill our joy with so many things that we don't stop and, 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 and realize that God is outside of our process. Have faith. Believe the spiritual realities. Just sit and think, you know what? God's in control. And I'm just going to think about that for a half. God's in control. In control of my cars, in control of me, he's in control of this guy, that guy, my friends. This guy's in control. I'm just going to meditate on that. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. That's talking about salvation. But I also think the principle is only way to build your faith is to spend time in the scriptures. Secondly, obey. Believe and obey. First Thessalonians says, Rejoice. Always. Rejoice. Always, always have joy. Philippians 4 says, we sung it as kids, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. Learn to tell your soul to obey. I love it in um, Psalm uh, 42, 5. Psalmist says, why are you in despair, my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. And I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. I mean, some of us are so easily depressed. It's so easy for us not to have joy. We just live in a depressive state. And the only thing worse than being depressed is being around someone who is depressed, right? 
I mean, you want to help them, just, well, just feel better. And I, can I take you to lunch? Can, well, I'll buy you something. And, and then they like it when you do that. So they get more depressed. So you'll get more attention. Oh, I'm doing okay. I'll be fine. Just, just leave me alone. And then you start to leave. But there is one thing you could do. Just stay a while. Just sit with me. The only thing worse than being depressed is being around someone who's obnoxiously depressed. Talk to your soul and say, don't be depressed, soul. Next time someone's depressed, how, I mean, how would this work in our Christian counseling if we said, why don't you tell your soul to shut up and not be depressed? But just tell it to shut up and not be depressed and, be, and have joy in the Lord. You say, that's too simple, Rick. Well, then we should probably throw the Bible away and get another book. Number three, <laughs> relate. Number three is relate. Relate with the Holy Spirit. He is a person. The fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes from Him. Understand and know His ministry. I would suggest studying John 14 to 17. And fourthly, on developing joy, is understand difficult times. You see, the reason we're not joyful is because we're going through something that's not making us happy. Does that make sense? It should. And if you'll read James chapter 1, it says, Consider it all... Joy, my brethren. And if I could change any word in the Bible, I would change the next word, but I can't, so I've got to leave it in there. I would say it later. Consider it all joy, my brethren, if you encounter various trials. I'd like that. Didn't say that? Consider it all joy, my brethren, what? When? It's a promise. Guys, they're coming. Trials, difficulty, hard times are coming. And know the whole process. Understand difficulty. God's using that for your perfection. Study James 1. I wish we had time to look at that. A worrying Christian is an oxymoron. There shouldn't be such a thing. Are you joyful and can people tell? Peace. What is biblical peace? Basically, it's the absence of conflict, right? Peace is the absence of conflict. And it's a threefold notion. Some people say, well, this is this, this, and this. I think all of them are wrapped up in this word peace and the fruit of the Spirit. Peace with God. Romans 5, 1. We've been reconciled to Christ. We have peace with God. You know what? I remember the absolute horror of not having peace with God. I remember laying in my bed at night, hearing thunder as a young, young kid in Tennessee, and we had big thunder in Tennessee, trust me, and knowing that God was going to kill me because I wasn't saved. I didn't go to the invitation. Brother Baker was calling me down. I didn't go last week. I'm, I'm dead. I remember laying in bed one night so scared as a nine-year-old that I did something a nine-year-old shouldn't do in bed, and you can only imagine it. I was so scared. The lender, ah, and all bodily functions just released. I was so scared and I was embarrassed. And then after that, I was so embarrassed and so ashamed that I said, God, I'll do anything. And the anything at that point came, consisted of, I knew my brother wanted to fly a kite because the reason he wanted to fly a kite is he had this big box square kite that we made our newspaper in Balsawood and I broke it the day before and I was feeling guilty about that. So I promised God I would make Mark a kite and that would make everything right. I was so scared. And you know what, guys? I don't know how any of you can dare go to bed, can dare get one wink of sleep if you don't have peace with God. Some of you are playing games. You're here, you wrote your testimony out, you're here, you're walking through, you're going to get your degree and go on. But you know what? You can fool the admissions committee, but you can't fool God, and you can't fool yourself if you don't have that peace. Secondly, it's the peace of God. When you have peace with God, you have peace of God or from God. It's a settledness in life because there's a steadiness with God. And then you have peace with man. Matthew 5.19 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for this you would call the sons of God. How can you develop such a biblical peace? I'll tell you another time. Uh, but I'll take you to one passage to bring both of these 
concepts together and I think it'll help a lot. Turn to Philippians 4 for a second. We spent so much time on the background that we sacrificed our time in the fruit. But I hope that you'll study it later. Philippians chapter 4. If you struggle with peace, if you struggle with joy, you have to meet God in this text. Verse 4. Command, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be made known to men, to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the, here it is, peace of God, remember that, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds, you know it well, in Christ Jesus. Then if you look down in um, verse 9, he says, the God of peace shall be with you. How do you do it? How do you have joy and peace? Verse 8 is the answer. Thurplo, I think I talked to you about that before. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, of good repute or good reputation. If there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, here it is. You want the key to joy? You want the key to peace? Here it is. Watch this. Let your mind dwell on these things. You know why you don't have peace and you don't have joy? It's because you're thinking on the wrong things. You're thinking on your circumstances. You're thinking on your relationship. You're thinking on things you have or don't have, things you want or don't want, rather than thinking on the spiritual realities that God's given you. Last April, I uh, got a call at 4.30 in the morning. Um, it was my mom. And uh, she called and said, Rick, uh, my dad had been, been battling with cancer for about six weeks. Um, I said, Rick, you need, to, you need to come home. I had been home two weeks earlier to spend a week with my dad. Um, she said, you need to come home. I said, well, okay, is dad getting bad? And she said, well, yeah, dad's getting real bad. His nails are turning blue and he's having difficulty breathing. And uh, the doctor said it could be an hour or two. Now, at that point, it was an only, an, I couldn't get a flight for another two hours, and then had to spend four and a half hours to Atlanta and another 30 minutes from Atlanta to Chattanooga. And I remember, listen, guys, I struggled. I didn't have any peace. I didn't have any joy at all. None. I was a wreck. Got on the plane. I'm sitting there thinking, praying, saying, Lord, give me peace and joy. I called, used one of those little things in the back of the seat, the telephones, and called my mom just to see what was going on. And, I said, Mom, this is Rick. Uh, how's Dad doing? And there was no answer. I said, Mom, this is, this is Rick. How's Dad doing? And she still couldn't say anything. I said, Mom, Dad's dead, isn't he? She said, yes. At that minute, and it wasn't because my dad was going to heaven, and it wasn't because I had insurance about that. I can't explain it other than to say I sat down, I, had, I put the phone back in the back, and I sat there and I thought, Lord, how am I... Well, I, I uh, and it was peace and it was joy. I can tell you that it's a fruit of the Spirit because I couldn't make it up. You said, that's a big, huge example. Two times last week, two times last week, I had such a struggle with having peace and joy that it almost made me vomit. One time late last night, or late in the evening last week, and one time earlier in the week, Something happened and it just caused me absolute distress. And the whole time I'm thinking, Lord, you want me to preach on peace and joy? Guys, you don't get there. You don't get these things wired. You've got to face this every morning and control your mind and talk to your soul to the extent that you control your emotions and they don't control you. If you get a handle on that now, 
then you'll miss the whole problem the Galatians had of being miserable in their Christian lives. If you forfeit your peace and you forfeit your joy now, I promise you nothing but misery in trying to please God in the flesh. Let's pray. Father, you have given peace and joy. We know it comes from you and we ask you for it. We can't make it up ourselves. God, make us know you. Make us have your peace and joy. I confess that I struggled with it, Lord. I struggled with it last week so bad that it, I was so anxious, Lord, I shook. We fail often, but we need you. Lord, help us to have gladness and joy in your presence. I pray for these students with so many pressures, school, uh, friends, relationships, studies, issues at home. Give them peace and joy. We pray for Ruth, Lord, who's on that plane, probably similar to the, the plane I was on last April. Give her peace and give her joy. Help her to see your work and that you're sovereign. God, we want to say we trust you, but we struggle. So help our hearts to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.